Amen. You can be seated. If you will, grab your Bible or get out your device, ever how you are following along this morning, but do want you to put your eyes on God's Word as we go to Mark chapter 1. And I know if you've been here, you're like, oh, we were in Mark chapter 14 last week, and we were, and so we're going to go back uh, some 50-some-odd messages ago uh, to the second message, and this is not the same message, it's, it's a different message, uh, from Mark chapter 1, and it should be verses 9 through 13. If you've got a bulletin, uh, you'll find the, the verses in the bulletin as well. That is from the ESV translation of the Scripture, which is what I'll be reading from and using predominantly uh, this morning. And so I thought with uh, today being Baptismal Sunday, it would be good for us to kind of go back to uh, Jesus' uh, own baptism. And uh, looking back, we, we preached this sermon all the way back in April of 2000, or this particular text back in May of 2018. So it's been about four years, uh, even since we were in Mark chapter 1. And so uh, for some of you, you weren't even here back in 2018, so it'll definitely be uh, brand new for you, but this is not the same sermon that I preached even four years ago uh, on this particular text. So if you don't have a phone with a Bible or a Bible or a bulletin, then there is the screen. So we've got, we've got you covered uh, in all areas so you can follow along this morning. Scripture says these words, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Now this is John the Baptist. This is not John who would make up the twelve. This is a different John. This is John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Uh, just a side note here. This, the word for torn open here is only used one other time in all of Holy Scripture. And it is used um, to uh, tell us what happens at the crucifixion when the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And so he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove. It says it was like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, the bulletin says that the title of the sermon is the, the Baptism and the Battle, but I've since changed that, and I'm entitling this morning's sermon, The Water and the Wilderness. The Water and the Wilderness. And that's what I want to focus our attention on this morning is two simple statements. Jesus in the water and Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus in the water and Jesus in the wilderness. So let's start by Jesus in the water. What, what is the significance of this moment? Why is Jesus, the sinless Son of God, going into the Jordan River 
to be baptized by John because John's baptism, according to John himself, was a baptism of repentance. Well, surely Jesus has nothing to repent of, right? Because if he does, then he cannot be the savior of the world. So what is Jesus doing there at the Jordan River? And why does he go into the water? And why does he ask John to baptize him? Well, here's a couple of truths. In the water, Jesus identifies with sinners. In the water, Jesus identifies with sinners. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say Jesus identified himself as a sinner. Jesus identifies himself with sinners. In his baptism, Jesus identifies himself as the Savior of sinners. Remember, Christ was not a deified man, as some would teach. Neither was he, as some others would teach, neither was he a humanized God. He was perfectly God, and at the same time, he was perfectly man. The baptism of the Lord Jesus identified him with sinful men and women without implying that Jesus was a sinner himself. Because Jesus was sinless. He needed no baptism. In, uh, in his baptism, he associated with sinners and placed himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but Jesus is doing this for your salvation. Matthew records this same event in Matthew chapter 3. And Matthew says that Jesus did this in accordance with righteousness. Why? Because this was what Jesus was commanded by the Father to do in his identification with sinners. So Jesus is not doing this because he needs to be saved. Jesus is doing this because it is part of redemption, our redemption. He's not doing this for his own guilt, but for ours. Not because he feared the wrath to come, but he's doing this to save us from the wrath to come. And so that's what we need. We need a Savior who can identify with sinners so that he can save sinners. In the water, God identifies Jesus as his Son. This is, this is vitally important. God the Father identifies Jesus as his son. He was baptized so to be identified with sinful man, but he was also baptized to be identified to sinful man. So it is in this moment of baptism that God speaks from heaven. And in the New Testament... This is the only record that we have of the Father speaking from heaven. And so Jesus' baptism, he goes into the water so that God can clearly identify him to those that are there on that day that this is my son. This is the long-promised, awaited Savior that the Old Testament has spoken, has spoken about for some 1,500 years. Now, you, you, you remember, the Jews, I mean, your Old Testament, which makes up uh, you know, over half of your Bible, out of the 66 books, 39 of them are found in the Old Testament. And all of those books were, were, were telling us, 
We're, 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 we're teaching the Jews and, and those that would listen outside of Judaism that God was going to keep his promise of Genesis 3.15. Remember in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and God uh, told them that, you know, hey, life from this point on is going to be really difficult. Uh, work is going to be hard. The ground is going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. Why? Because you chose to follow your own way than follow my way. You, you chose to love yourself rather than to love me. You, you, you chose rebellion over relationship. And so life is going to be hard, but in the 15th verse of the third chapter of Genesis, God says to them that he is going to send a Savior sometime in the future. And so from that point on, the Bible is, is preparing the Jews through everything that you read in the Old Testament. It is preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It, it, it is written so that they would know when the Messiah comes that it was him. And yet still, after thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands of words that were penned in the Old Testament, when Jesus arrives on the scene, there are still very few that believe that he is the Son of God. And so in this moment, God speaks from heaven above, and he says, this is my Son. God clears it up, right? He clears it up. This is my son. So in the water, God identifies Jesus as his son. But in the water, the Spirit identifies Jesus as our Savior. I know it says as a Savior. It should say as our Savior. In the water, the Spirit identifies Jesus as our Savior. Now, again, the Old Testament had kind of set the stage concerning how we would know that Jesus is the true Messiah. And if we go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, this is probably the best verse out of all of the Old Testament that points towards Jesus being the Savior of the world. Now, notice how it begins. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. All right? So what, what's happening here in the water? It says uh, 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 that... The Spirit descended like a dove onto Jesus. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so here we see in this one event, the, the, this like a dove descending, the Spirit of God in some form that's like a dove, is descending onto Jesus to do what? To tell you and I that in the water, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is not being baptized for the remission of sin, but he is being baptized because he will be the one that will give his life for the remission of sins. John, in chapter 1, verse 32 through 34, says this, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. Now, this is what's interesting about what John says, is that John says that it descended like a dove, and notice what it said, it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent 
me to baptize with water and said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, there's something, if we're not careful, we'll miss in this scene that, that's unfolding before our eyes is <clears throat> something is happening in our text today that has not happened since the first day of creation. Not since Genesis chapter 1 has Scripture shown us the three persons of the Trinity all present at the same time. In Genesis 1, you have God the Father and God the Son who are in heaven creating. And you have, according to Genesis chapter 1, it says that the Spirit hovered over the deep. Do you remember that? The, the, the Hebrew scholars tell us that that word hovered would be better translated fluttered like a dove. So here we have God the Father, God the Son speaking in the world into being. We have the Holy Spirit that is present there at the creation bringing about the formation and the creation of solar systems and planets and, and suns and moons and stars and everything that has been created was happening in those six days of creation. But listen to me. In those six days, God was creating something new, right? It didn't exist before, so it's got to be new, right? Guess what's happening right here? The fact that the Father is still in heaven, but now the Son is no longer in heaven, but the Son is actually down on the earth, and the, and the Spirit is there, present like a dove on the Son. God is saying to you and I, I'm keeping my promise. I told you in Genesis 3.15 that you, Adam and Eve, and all of your descendants will make a wreck of this world. But here's my promise. I will renew what you have done. All the damage that you have done, all the curse that has been brought into the world because of sin, God says, I am going to undo what has been done. God has a plan of renewal. He has a plan of restoration. He has a plan of redemption. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us how we got here. Genesis 3 tells us how we fouled it all up in our sin. And from Genesis 3 all the way to the final two chapters of Revelation, it tells us how God is going to restore and make all things new as we see it in the last two chapters of Revelation. Because when we get to the last two chapters of Revelation, what do we see? We see a new earth, and we see a new heaven, and we see a new heaven coming down onto the new earth, and God will dwell with His people forever. You see, the Bible is nothing more from Genesis chapter 3 going forward than God's plan 
of restoration, renewal, redemption. And here, God is saying, look, the plan has now come to earth in person. You've heard about it for 1,500 years, and now here I am in flesh and blood, and my son is going to bring about the restoration of all things. He is going to bring redemption to man. Why? Because man cannot redeem himself. Man cannot restore himself. Man cannot renew himself. I watched this weekend the latest edition of the Batman that just recently came out at the movie. And I was struck in that movie that Gotham City had been overrun with corruption all the way up to the highest level. And basically what was going on was is that there was always a promise of renewal, but nothing ever got better. Why? Because man is too corrupt to renew himself. And so what do we need to bring about God's renewal to the world? Is we need a Savior who can come and can do something about what's wrong with the world. And one day, it'll get, listen, listen to me, it'll get worse before it gets better. <laughs> this world ain't going to get better. It's only, it's only downhill. It's only going to get worse. If we think we've seen the worst, then if God grants you six more months, you'll see worse than you saw the last six months. Why? Because sin is increasing. And yet one day God is going to come and he's going to put an end to all of this. And he's going to take this planet that he created for his people and he is going to renew it and he is going to bring his heaven down to this earth and we are going to live here on this renewed earth with the new heaven for eternity no longer having to deal with sin. Now that should have made even the coldest Baptist get happy. There's a verse that I want to share before we go to the last point. Uh, this morning. And that is, it's, it's this kind of weird verse over in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 was probably read and preached a lot last week, but I doubt this verse probably made it into it because we typically pick up 1 Corinthians 15. We usually like the first three or four verses, and then we like to pick up at the tail end of, these, of this 60-some-odd verse chapter, we like to pick up on the tail end when it talks about the resurrection from the dead. But listen to these words, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain them to you, all right, in just a minute. But let's, let's look at them. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, this is talking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from where? Where? Earth. A man of dust. The second man is what? He's from heaven. Praise God. Why? Because if he came from dust, we would be in deep 
trouble this morning. You see, the first Adam, he encountered temptation, while the second Adam endured an onslaught of temptation. The first Adam was tempted in an oasis called the Garden of Eden, while the second Adam was tempted in the outback, in the wilderness. The first Adam was tempted while feasting, while the second Adam was tempted while fasting. The first Adam was surrounded by Eden's comforts, while the second Adam was surrounded by earth's curse. The first Adam believed the serpent, while the second Adam believed the scripture. You see, Jesus is already undoing what happened in Genesis 3 in the story that is before us this morning. But there's something else. In the water, we declare ourselves saved. So Natalie uh, Harold is going to be baptized here in a few minutes, and she's going to go over into this pool of water, and her father is going to submerse her for some period of time. <laughs> you know, she, she was little, and I said, look, your sister is still alive, so I believe he'll bring you back up. And I said, if he doesn't, we'll have your funeral and eat potato salad, because I said, nobody here can raise you from the dead. We'll just let you go on and be with Jesus. And um, I said, your dad might not be far behind, but... <laughs> but Natalie is going to go into the baptismal water. Look, that, that's just water. There's nothing special about that water. It's just city water. And not the best city water, might I say, either. And she's just going to be dunked in it. But listen, what, what's happening, what, what you need to see is more than a pool of water, what you need to see is that there's something very significant happening because what Natalie is saying to all of you is she is saying, in the water, I am declaring myself to be a follower of Jesus. I am declaring myself to be what the Bible would call, would call a born-again Christian. Uh, she has been saved to use some other Christian language. And that's what we do in the, in the water. We declare ourselves. The water cannot save you. Baptism can't save anyone. And I know that's, that's, you know, that's debatable in some denominations. like to say that, that water, that baptism is necessary for regeneration. And I'm not going to go through the, all the arguments as to why it's not necessary for regeneration or for salvation or whatever word you want to use. If it was so, how in the world did the thief on the cross end up into heaven? Because he never had a chance to get to the pool. It's not necessary for salvation. But let me, let me give you something this morning. It is... Let me get past these words. In the water, and the reason why baptism is necessary for a Christian who doesn't die a few, few hours after they're saved. It's necessary because it's where we begin our sanctification. And you say, well, that's a big word. What's sanctification mean? I just simply mean it's where we start our spiritual journey. It's where we start growing spiritually. That's why baptism is necessary. Why? Because it, before Jesus does any miracles, he's baptized. The very first act of publicly that Jesus does as the Messiah is he's baptized. And listen, as a Christian, it is the first necessary step in order to begin to grow in our faith. And look, I really don't care 
If you do it by immersion, that's what we practice as Baptists because we believe that the word baptism means to immerse. To, Jesus wasn't standing on the side of the Jordan River and got sprinkled. He went into the Jordan River and he went under. Okay? I just kind of like to do the way Jesus did it. But I'm not saying that if, if you've been sprinkled, that that's of no effect. But I will say this. It seems to me to, a lack, to lack a little bit of the spiritual experience when you go under with Jesus and you come up with Jesus. But anyway, that's just a little sidebar. But this is where we begin to walk with the Lord. So whether it's through sprinkling or whether it's through immersion, let me tell you a quick story. I had a young man that was a member of this church many years ago. His family has since moved to Jasper, Alabama. He had been saved more times than Carter's got liver pills. I mean, that, that's just an old saying that some of you would know and some people won't know. But he had been saved a lot and baptized a lot. He grew up in a, in, in a very evangelistic church. And pretty much any time he went to winter camp or summer camp, he got saved. And a lot of that just had to do with he was young and uh, he, uh, he, he had a very sensitive conscience, and he, he pretty much could not uh, theologically work it out in his mind that after he got saved, he wasn't going to stop sinning. So pretty much every time he got saved, and then he went right back after some period of time to sinning, it was time for him to get saved again. Well, as he matured and as he grew up into his early, I think, mid-20s, he genuinely got saved. He genuinely got born again. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, it's been 12, 13 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I was preaching on, on baptism. It, it came up in our, in our study. And, and I brought this point up that baptism is necessary as a first step of obedience in spiritual growth. He came up to me afterwards. He said, look, he said, I got saved when I was really saved when I was 24. And I already knew his story. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, but here's the deal. I didn't get baptized. He said, I figured I had been under the water so much that God just count one of those, you know, for me. And I said, yeah, but it really don't count because you really wasn't saved. You, you just... Look, it's like the old song said, you can go to hell wet and still get burnt. I mean, that's kind of the salvation he had. The, you know, I said, you, you need to do it right. I said, you need to be a baptized believer. And here's what led him to this. He wasn't struggling with his salvation, but he told me, he said, you know, I've spent several years, the last several years, really struggling in my spiritual growth. And so we baptized him on a couple of Sundays later and and i still talk to this young man from time to time he's he's a lot of he's not young anymore he's kind of like me the years are passing by and and there's less hair and what's there is a different color than it was when he was in his 20s and but but here's the thing he and i have talked several times and he said brother jason he said i always go back to that sunday that i was baptized he said i cannot tell you what a difference that has made in my spiritual growth and I said, it's because you started being obedient in the very first act of obedience that a believer takes. And so I just simply say this to you this morning. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, then listen, you need to be baptized. Why? Because you'll never grow spiritually 
You'll never be obedient to the Lord like you should if you cannot simply be obedient in the first act of Christian obedience, which is baptism. Why? Because all baptism does is it is, it is our public identification with Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that this is what Christians do. All right, so let's go to the wilderness real quick. I don't have much to say about the wilderness because this morning's more about the baptism than it even is in the wilderness. But, but let's, let's look and see what we learn from the wilderness. Well, let me tell you one other something about baptism that kind of sets up the wilderness. The baptism, baptism is not some flippant act that Christians do. I mean, what we're going to do in a moment is serious. I mean, it really is. It, I mean, now, I've, I've been a part of some funny baptisms. Like, I had a guy almost broke my leg in a baptism one Sunday. Because I told him, I said, hey, look, when you come down the steps, and this was a big church, big baptismal pool, like, you could put five or six people in this baptismal pool. And, and I said, look, I said, you've got to hold on to the rail when you come down. I said, if not, you, you may slip, Okay. Well, he was a macho jock, you know, he was senior in high school, and uh, so here he comes out of the baptismal room, he shimmying across, and he comes to that top step, takes one step down, and next thing I know, both feet come out, he slides, boom, 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 boom down the steps, his feet go up, the wave goes over the baptism, onto the choir that's there, and he jumps up with his hands up in the air, I'm baptized, and everybody laughed and all that. And there's, I could tell you other crazy baptismal stories, but baptism is a serious and a solemn moment. Why? Because here's what most people don't think about when they go in the baptismal pool. Are, you're declaring yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, which makes you an enemy of Satan. Do not think it is by accident that the moment that Jesus is baptized, the devil is waiting on him. When you are at your Christian apex is when you should expect satanic attacks. It is a declaration of war. It is, it is, it is a message to the, to the devil himself that, guess what? We sung it last week. You lost another one. I am free. I am free. Hell lost another one. I am free. And there's nothing more that Satan hates than losing. And if he, can't, if he can't keep you for all of eternity in hell, guess what he will do? He will try to make your Christian existence here on earth hell. And so in the wilderness, we learn that it is not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted, but that didn't mean that Jesus sinned. Temptation is a, solic a solicitation to sin. It's an enticement to evil. It's an invitation to iniquity. It's a tantalization to transgression. Sin is giving in to the temptation. That's what sin is. And Jesus was tempted so that he could, as in his baptism, look at what the Bible says, since, there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear to death 
all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus was tempted so that he can say to us, I know what it feels like to be tempted. And you say, yeah, but Jesus was perfect. Like Temptation couldn't have been that, that strong for him like it is for me. Let me ask you a question. This morning, if we had a, if we had a barbell up here, and I put 500 pounds on it, and I lifted it to my knees, you might say, well, that's pretty impressive. Let's say that somebody else came along, and they lifted it up, and they lifted it to their chest. In a power clean, well, we call that a power clean position. You'd say, that's, that's even more impressive. But let's say that that same person, let's say that another person come along, picked it up, pulled it to their chest, and then pressed it, elbows locked out, over their head. Who's the strongest person? The person that put it all the way over. Listen, Jesus is the only one who has ever fully endured all the strength of temptation. You and I, sometimes we feel it. We're like the guy that pulls it to our knees. And sometimes we might feel it. We're like the person that pulls it to their chest. But none of us have technically experienced it like Jesus did because Jesus endured every temptation at its max and its fullest, and he never sinned. So when he says, I know what it's like to be tempted, he knows what it like. He's, he knows what he's talking about, and he knows even better than you and I know because he did it, and he never sinned. But we learn in the wilderness that it's not a sin to be tempted. But we also learn that temptation is necessary. Temptation is necessary. Listen, Natalie's going to go through the water. She's going to come out. She's going to change clothes. And she's going to, I don't know, have a party. It looks like maybe she's already had a party. She's got her crew over here together. They all rolled out of the vehicle this morning. That, that's awesome uh, that you got your crew here when you're getting baptized. But listen, when you come out of the water, the life of a Christian is temptation. And it's necessary to be tempted. Why? Because the way we grow spiritually is through our resistance to temptation. The only way you and I are going to grow in our Christian faith and the only way that you and I are going to get stronger is by enduring both testing and temptation in our life. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, the only way you build muscles in your body is through what is called resistance training. You have to put your muscles under a heavy enough load that it triggers ATP in your body, which allows you to build muscle in your body. That's what's necessary. And it can only be triggered by intense physical exertion and resistance. And listen, if you and I are going to grow, you and I are going to have to endure, much like Job did, much like Paul did, much like the great saints of God did, if we're really going to grow in this faith, then guess what? Temptation and testing is necessary. You will spend your life in the wilderness. There might be moments where you, where you might ascend to some type of spiritual top mountain experience, but listen, that's not where Christians live. Christians live down in the wilderness, down in the valley. And you say, don't end the sermon with that. Don't let that be the last point of the sermon. And it's not. 
Because here's the last point of the sermon. In the wilderness, we learn that we are never without God's grace. In the wilderness, we learn that we are never without God's grace. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are led into warfare. We are not redeemed to rest, but to wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Jesus shows us that spiritual muscle is built by, by resisting, not resting. From the text, I can prove what's on the screen with this. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. So are we. When you, go into the, when you go into the wilderness, you're not by yourself. When you face testing and temptation, you're not by yourself. God's Spirit is with you. The grace of God is there. Jesus had the Scripture, and guess what? So do we. Our Bible, is, it's a weapon, it's a sword that we wield in spiritual warfare so that we can overcome temptation and so that we can endure the trials of this life. But listen, guess what? Jesus, we have something that Jesus didn't have in the wilderness. You want to know what that is? Two things. We have his sympathy. I've already told you, Jesus, according to Hebrews 4.15, says that he's a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to go in head-to-head, and face-to-face with the devil himself. But he knows how to do it and not lose. We have his sympathy. He knows what it's like. And that leads me to this. And because we have his sympathy, we have his supplication. That's a fancy church word for prayer. You know Jesus is praying for you? You're like, well, how can Jesus be praying for me and praying for somebody else? Well, that's just because he's who he is. He can do a billion things at one time and, and do them all perfectly. And he is praying for us, his children. Romans 8.34 tells us that he's at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. Do you remember what happened to Peter? at um uh there in those final days with jesus what did what did uh what did jesus say to peter uh peter by the time the rooster crows you're gonna have denied me what three times peter said nope ain't gonna happen to me lord now these other cats over here you probably ought to watch them they're not like me you know, like I, I'm your number one. Like I'm in the inner circle, and I'm like in the inner circle of the inner circle. You remember, I'm the guy that you said who's the rock, and you're building the church on me? And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because not only did Peter, den- was he going to deny the Lord, but Peter was also going to try to stop the Lord from doing what the Lord came to do, and that is to bring about salvation. He said, I'm not even going to let you be arrested. I'm not going to let them take away. I'm not going to let them do anything to you. But yet, what happened? Jesus said, 
Satan is going to sift you like wheat. You, you're going to fail, Peter. You're going to fail, and you're going to fail big time, and you're going to fail miserably. But does anybody know how that ends? Because we don't often talk. We always talk about how Peter failed, but we don't talk about the, the really good part of that story. And Jesus says, but Peter, I have prayed for you. And when this is all over with, because I prayed, you're going to get the brethren together. And that rock that I said that you were, you will become that rock. And I will build my church upon you. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it ever. And so listen to me this morning. As a Christian, the grace of God is with us because the Spirit is in us. We've got the Scripture Jesus sympathizes with our struggle, and yet Jesus is praying for us even this very moment. And I'm just going to leave you with this statement. David, if you will come. Jesus finished his course. Now, he's still got about three years before he gets there, but Jesus finished his course, and so will we, because the Spirit in us and the prayers of Jesus for us ensures our faithful finish. Listen, this morning as, as uh, Natalie is baptized, if, if, if her profession of faith is real, sincere, genuine, and she's really a Christian, you know what I can say to her this morning? I can say, look, Natalie, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. You, you're going to fail at times, you're going to falter in your walk with the Lord. But listen, you can falter, but you will never quit. Why? Because when God puts his spirit in you and Jesus is praying for you, you only have one destination, and that's the finish line. That's heaven. You won't get there because you are smart and strong and because you were super spiritual, you'll get there because the Spirit of God was at work in your life and the prayers of Jesus for you will bring you safely home in the end. Jesus, Paul says of Jesus, he that has begun a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. Listen, the work began the moment she put her faith in Christ and the work continues in a moment as she is baptized and then it will continue from that point on for the rest of her life in the wilderness. And, it's, and, and so it is with every Christian. I, wanna, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. And Natalie and Ron are going to go prepare for baptism. But listen. My, my admonition to you this morning is, is simply this. Number one is, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you, have you turned from your sin because you realize that you cannot save yourself? You, you've tried, you've tried to do better, you've tried to turn over a new leaf, you've tried to start over, uh, you, 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 you've done all kinds of stuff to try to stop doing what you're doing, and yet it just doesn't work. And that's because you can't save yourself, you can't make yourself good enough. But what you can do is you can bring that sorry wretch of itself that you are to the, to the per perfect Savior. And you can say, I, I am what you say I am. I'm a sinner. 
And I believe that you can do what you say that you can do, and that is forgive my sins and make me yours, make me your child. And you can say to Jesus, Jesus, this morning, I, I'm agreeing with everything you say. I'm believing everything that I know about you at this moment. And I'd ask that you would save me. Listen, if you can, if you can put that together and say that with, with, with the sincerity of heart, the Bible says that God will forgive all of your sins and that he will give you the grace that you need to walk with him the rest of the days of your life. You, you won't walk perfectly with him, but guess what? He will walk perfectly with you. He won't give up on you. He won't quit on you. He will see you through to the end because he lives inside of you by his spirit and he prays for you constantly. And Christian, maybe this morning you're just disheartened, maybe because your walk is a little up and down and volatile, and you just need to be reminded this morning of who Jesus is and what this symbol of baptism means. It's our assurance that he is with us. And nothing can turn around your rut and nothing can bring you out of the rut that you're in this morning spiritually than repentance and if you'll just come before your father who loves you and cares deeply for you and you'll just confess your sin he will renew and refresh you this morning father in heaven in these moments ahead i pray that you would redeem those who don't know you and that you would refresh those who are your children in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this last song together this morning.